Suppose that you decided to get a nice new refrigerator. Expensive refrigerator. It was one that you've been thinking about, one that you really needed. Refrigerator has French doors. It opens to multi-drawers inside. It's stainless steel with sub-zero temperature. It's really nice. You pay a lot of money for it, and you pay a little extra so that you can have the full-service in-home white glove delivery. You're so excited about the arrival of your refrigerator just a couple of hours before it's slated to be delivered at a precise time. You're at Kroger, and you're stocking up so that you can stuff these goodies inside your new refrigerator. You're getting your favorite foods. You're getting some good frozen treats and some fresh produce. You're excited and you are there and you're ready to stock up. The refrigerator, the nice and new one, arrives at your home. and They put it in for you and you stuff it and you marvel and you, you go to bed, you retire for the night. The next day you enter into your kitchen and you look at this refrigerator and you quickly notice that the milk has started to spoil, that the ice cream is melting, that the fresh produce is not so fresh, that is starting to wilt and look depressed, and so are you because your new nice fridge ain't working. So you make the phone call to the store, and you're a little bit angry, and the guy is in customer service, so he's real nice. He's trained to be nice. It's not really in his heart. It's just part of the job description. And he says to you, well, calm down, and we're sorry for this, and just stay on the phone, and let's troubleshoot a few things. Open the refrigerator door. See if the light comes on. You do. It doesn't. He says, well, okay, put your ear next to the refrigerator and see if you hear a hum. You do, but you don't. There's no hum. There's no light, no hum. He says, well, go to the back of the refrigerator. There's a cord. You got this. There's a cord, and see if it's plugged in you look and it's not but suppose in this scenario that your response is so strange your response is this your anger escalates and you blame him and you say you know what cord or no cord with the price I paid for this refrigerator it ought to work and that helpful hardware man says to you you know your refrigerator though nice and new is an appliance and appliances by nature are dependent and this appliance, this nice new refrigerator of yours, it was manufactured in such a way that it won't work unless it has an outside invisible power source. And what is true of the nice new refrigerator that you bought is true of you and me. We have a designer, we have a manufacturer, we have a creator. And you've been manufactured in such a way that you don't work unless there's a power source. And that's the story that we find in Acts, and it's the reason we pointed you last week. And even though we read Acts chapter 1, we didn't go line by line, verse by verse, but we introduced the work of God in this new era, and we highlighted Acts chapter 1, verse 8, about what a spiritual movement is. I said a few times that, uh, that nowhere in Acts do you see the church portrayed as it is in America today. Nowhere in Acts do you see the church as a place to visit or an event to sit through. It's a movement to be a part of. And we said a movement of men and women who were captured by a message and yielded to the Spirit. And we pointed to Acts 1.8, a great memory verse. And you will receive what? You'll receive power. You'll receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the othermost parts of the world. And I, I wanted to minister blessing and truth to you as I said what does a witness do? It's not so much what a witness does, it's what a witness says has been done. If you're in a court of law and you have to testify, they're not saying, what do you do, what do you do? They're saying, what has been done? What did you see? What do you know? And to be his witnesses, God is saying, I want to empower you so that you'll be able to tell this message that has captured you, that you'll be able to do so with clarity and boldness in spite of all the opposition that you face, you'll be able 
to do that. We presented to you a question, how can a dozen dysfunctional disciples grow to two billion people? There's a question, a similar question that has puzzled and perplexed historians for centuries. Why did Christianity grow so far and so fast, especially especially in its early years? The group left that left, Jesus left behind, they were small. They weren't necessarily influential. They were Galileans. They were fishermen. They were carpenters. They, Christianity never spread through conquest. History tells us the first 400 years that not really a sword was lifted to defend its name. Its followers, earliest followers, did not grow rich. They didn't gain or benefit in ways that you and I would enlist in movements. In fact, they lost homes and fortunes and livelihoods to be a part. A Yale historian and professor puts it this way, related to that question, the more one examines the various factors which seem to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity, the more one is driven to search for a cause underlining them all. Do you hear that? This is supernatural. If it's true, it's supernatural. It is clear, he says, that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy, virtually unequaled in history, Nothing else could explain the surge of the early Christian movement. What he goes on, what caused this release of energy? It lies outside the realm in which modern historians are supposed to move. There are things that we can look at and attribute this movement to. Nothing, nothing like it, nothing like it in history. Though they didn't conquer by sword, by conquest, it was a movement of love. It was a community unlike the world had ever seen at the time. It was a peaceful community. In those four, first 400 years, history shows us that there was a bunch of persecuted religious groups, but it was the Christians, the little Christ, the followers of the way of Jesus that did not fight back, but rather chose to forgive their captors. They were a peaceful community. They were a welcoming community. It was a community that said all are equal, including the outcast. All are equal, in the eyes of Jesus, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, master and slave, man and woman. But there was a movement of the Spirit. I love the way this intelligent Yale professor puts it. It was a surge of movement, a release. There was energy involved. And then something, in various times, something went wrong. A movement became an institution. And religious people, particularly men, became the dispensers of religious goods and services. And the attenders were merely attenders. And today, if we're not careful, our churches are not movements. But they are places to attend and events to sit through. Where there are people pleasing pastors and pastor needing attenders. And what launches in churches today often will result in life support because of maintenance and preservation God give us a move of his spirit God allow us to be bold Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 8 I believe we will read today and then I'm going to make reference to a few other verses in this chapter can you read along with me Acts 2 1 when the day of Pentecost arrived they were all together in one place it's going to get weird and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and nobody came to church. No. 
And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude, yeah, that sound too, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? That'd be like saying, aren't you guys from Pearl? Don't y'all live over in Pearl, you know? What's happening here besides it feeling a little weird? What God intends for us to understand is that this ought to be a good thing, a noble thing, and a uniting thing, but yet we let it be a confusing thing and a dividing thing. And we see here a special time in history. I've been asking you, I will be asking you as we move through this series for you to read and study on your own. I'm not going line by line, verse by verse and tackling every question or controversy. I'm giving you the big themes and asking you to learn. It's the kind of church we want to be. We don't want to feed you. We want to create a hunger in you so that you will go and learn yourself. But in this, we see this movement of God. And so we're asked to, we're, we're, we need to ask ourselves to, in order to understand Acts, we're going to tackle some of the controversies as we move into this later, um, this spring. But th- there are some things that we need to ask, like is this descriptive? Was this for a specific time, place, and people, and it was time-bound, not for everybody today? Or is it prescriptive? Everything you read in Acts ought to be true in the church today that very question divides thoughtful even godly people and so I want as I lead us and lead our church into our future to call us into understanding and call us in to unity now what was happening the day of Pentecost there's a whole denomination that's booming throughout the world now based on this narrative this is the day of Pentecost it's the birth of the church It's inauguration of something new, the mystery, the union between Jews and Gentiles. In other words, God is truly saying, I am doing a new work and I'm going to show up in a big way. This new work is a work of his spirit. God, what do you have for us? Something like you've never seen before, ever, ever. The early church is born. First Baptist Church of Jerusalem, right? I'm sorry, First is it First Presbyterian Church of Jerusalem? Or wait, 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 hold on. Or is it a non-denominational church, huh? Let's just let that sit out there this morning, right? Some of you have, people give you a hard time about going to a non-denominational church, anybody? Here the church started and it was non-denominational. But it was a spirit-filled church. And God was doing his work, fulfilling prophecy. And scripture teaches us That there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, but it's for every tribe, tongue, and nation. You get that? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, but for every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And here we see that really taking root. Here's God saying, I'm going to bring Jew and Gentile together. That's the work of the cross. The wall of hostility has been removed. And I'm going to do this work. And we see tongues. Nod your head a little bit if you're sort of spooked by this or just generally you just don't understand it. Nod your head if you've uh, maybe had a fight or two about this or you just have misunderstood someone else's spiritual experience related to this gift that the Holy Spirit gives. So I'm going to call us to unity. I just want to say a few things. We'll tackle it a little bit more later. But tongues, here's what it's not. I'm, 
I'm not afraid to say this. Here's what it's not in Acts chapter 2. It is not a private prayer language. It is not a mystical me and Jesus in the closet. It's not a groaning of the spirit. We'll tackle those two things. But here's what this is. If you read it, and I stop because there's a lot of phonetically awkward pronunciations and stuff here in those verses. But it's just it's people from different places, okay? Just as we can visit a place. I'm, I'm getting on a plane later today and flying to Vancouver. And my friend Swayze Waters can tell you he's going to kick footballs up there. It's, it's one of the most diverse places in the world. But imagine being at a place of diversity and then people start speaking. Here's what I want to tell you. Here's what happened in Acts 2. You can't argue with this. It would be like me starting to speak in French, fluent French. I've been to France, but I don't speak French. Don't speak French. But imagine if I broke out in some French right now and somebody is from France, and they understood what I was saying. What, what an amazing miracle. And that's what God was doing. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. So I personally believe, without, you know, without creating a stir or causing fights, I personally believe that the day of Pentecost was really a special day. I love my Pentecostal friends. I don't believe that everything in this text is prescriptive for everything in the church for all times and cultures. But I'm open to every blessing that God has. Whatever he did here that he want, whatever he did there that he wants to do here, Lord, do your work. I want to be a Holy Spirit church. Does that seem a little weird to you? I want us to be a spirit-filled church. I want us to walk in the spirit, to be led by the spirit. I want, I want us to see miracles and see things happen in our church. I want to be a Holy Spirit church. But here's I want you to rest today. I don't want us, I don't want us to get a, you know, get a bunch of church vans and paint flames of fire on the side and put words like anointed and revival and holy ghost and shekinah glory we're not gonna ask my wife to change her hairstyle and make it look as big as the state of texas or our makeup look like she lost a paintball fight we're not going to do any of those things we're not going to create lines around the sanctuary where you can run laps during the service or hand out tambourines with little ribbons on them we're not trying to do any of that but i think you can be a holy spirit church one pastor friend of mine says, we want to be the kind of church where you can raise your hands and your arms, but, but just keep them in the vehicle, right? Keep them inside, right? We want the spirit to manifest himself, but we want this, as scripture says, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we want this to be a place of peace and order, not confusion. So while I want to lead you in the truth of God's word to realize, man, something special happened here. And it was a surge of electricity and energy like the world has not seen. And God breathed a fresh fire fresh air on his people i want us to revel in that and appreciate that and let that astonish us and then let it not cause us to fall off the deep end of weirdness and experience but also to be open to whatever god has i told you last sunday i had a doctor friend who was visiting our church years ago he took me to coffee i thought it was going to be sort of standard but he said hey look we love fonder church we love the work god is doing i want to ask you if you're going to be my pastor i want to ask you if one of my kids is sick or my wife or me would you pray for healing for him, it was, a, it was a barometer, it was a litmus test to say, do we believe in the miracles that God has for people? And will we lay hold of that? I want to be a spirit-led church. Peter preaches a sermon. It's a preacher's dream. It's a preacher's dream. He preaches this sermon for the first non-denominational church of Jerusalem. And I, I think I told you last week, at least in one of the services, 3,000 people come to faith. That's just a good day. 
Just a, just a really good day. I didn't know that we counted people at Fondren Church. We never talk about numbers, but two weeks ago, Easter, our guys told us that we had, for the first time ever, had 1,000 people on our campus. For us, that's a, that's a really good day. So, oh, Robert, there you're talking about numbers, but every number has a name and every name has a soul. And for whatever reason, they're counting them. And that was a really good day. But it was Easter, right? Your numbers get inflated. And some days on storm days, your numbers get deflated. But here we are today. Here we are today and we look back and we say that no matter what has happened, whether it's a high day or a low day or an average day in between, something happened on this day like we have never seen. And the tendency for guys like me of my stripe, the people that are in my profession, are to look at Peter and be jealous and say he's got something I, I don't have. And truly, that could be true. But he has the same spirit that's alive in you and I today or that can be alive in you and I today. The man who discipled me in college, so formative in my life, he said to me, Robert, Jesus can be resident in your life, but not president. You can have the spirit within you, but he's not calling all the shots in your life. I want us to be led by the spirit. I said last week, there's the gifts of the spirit. Paul said, when I write to you about the gifts of the spirit, I would not have you ignorant, but there's so much confusion. Let us learn about the gifts that he gives. Let it not promote pride. Let it not promote jealousy. And then also I talked to you about the fruit of the Spirit. Honestly, what's in my heart as the pastor of Fondren Church is to understand the gifts more and more, but to emphasize the fruit always. Because we, what we do know is the fruit, the manifestation of the fruit, the character formation in your life is what's so important. You may or may not have this gift. This gift may or not be operating as fully functional today as it was then. But you have been given the fruit of the Spirit, and God wants to produce love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control in your life and mine more and more and more progressively. So we see in this sermon, we see the numbers thing. Churches are too caught up with numbers, right? But 3,000 people get saved and come to faith that day. And in the numbers, we see something really beautiful. And it says really what is every preacher's dream. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37 and 38, I call your attention to it and focus on this. Now, when they heard this, that's the sermon from Peter, they were what? They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That is, that's when God's doing a work. When you're cut to the heart and when you ask the question, when you're sitting there and you ask the question, what do we do? In light of this, what do we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive this gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want to submit to you just a few things related to this idea of being cut to the heart. What did it mean? What happened? What were they experiencing? The first thing of being cut to the heart, later Bon Jovi would write a song similar to this, but cut to the heart meant what? It was them saying we were wrong. We were wrong about Jesus. We thought maybe he was a prophet. We thought maybe just a good rabbi. We thought maybe he was ushering in uh, some standards of living that people needed. We thought maybe he was this, but we were wrong about it. 3,000 people were among those 3,000. This sermon that Peter preached, history tells us, was about two months after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. In other words, they were all hanging around. And 3,000 people couldn't pass it off as some sort of mass hallucination or that Jesus was some type of really conniving, successful con man artist, liar. And they couldn't see that he was some type of lunatic. The beauty and symmetry of his message was too great. 
We cannot pass this off. Think about it. Three, now remember Paul says Christ appeared for 5,000. Here are 3,000 people who come to faith. These are 3,000 people two months after Jesus was crucified and he died. 3,000 people, don't you think one of them could have said, hey, here's the tomb, or hey, let me take you to the body, or let me tell you what I know. But they said, we cannot. We cannot explain this. We were wrong. They were cut to the heart. And this experience is similar to what happens to you when you know you're wrong. My wife in 20... One years from time to time in the heat of the moment has alleged in an argument that I have trouble at times admitting that I am wrong. <sighs> Can you believe that? <laughs> admitting that I'm wrong. But there's those moments, right? When you know the Holy Spirit is real and alive, when you're like, oh, it cuts me to the heart. And you know this. Anybody in a relationship, when you can have that moment, you can just say, I was wrong. You have to walk to the other room. Right? You have to get their attention. They make you, you know, crawl. But you got to say, I, I was wrong. Why? You're able to do it because you were cut to the heart. And here they said, we were wrong about Jesus. We cannot explain this man. And I say it often. I say it every Easter. I say it on Palm Sunday. I say it about 20 times a year. The only man in the history of the world to predict his death and resurrection and then to pull it off. And they said, we are cut to the heart. We were wrong about this man. He is who he claimed to be. Not only did they say in being cut to the heart that we were wrong, they said we, we were, we are responsible. Now this is a passage, if you, if you read Acts 2, the sermon that Peter preached, I encourage you to do so. When you read this passage in this sermon, you will see that Peter twice says, you crucified him. You crucified him. Now, Peter's preaching. He's got an audience. You know what preachers do. They use hand gestures, and sometimes they point. A lot of times when they say you, they'll point to you, right? You did this. What if, what if we did this? What if, what if I did this a lot at church? Would you, would you come back? You. You did this, right? You. Your sin. And Peter's doing this. But here's where this passage has been properly or improperly understood. These were first century Jews. In Jerusalem. This isn't anti-Semitic. This is not Peter saying the Jews did this as some have done in the history of our world. Deplorable. It's horrible. And to say, oh, this sermon and this motivation, the Jews killed Jesus. They ought to be killed. This is not anti-Semitic. This is, it's, this is Peter saying this is global. Number one, it's global. If you look down, if your Bible's open to verse 39, he talks about you and your children and the people that come after you. That would be us. You did this. You crucified Jesus. It's global. It's everybody. Sin affects every one of us. Sin affects every part of us. You crucified him. It's global, but it's also personal. Peter is saying, I crucified him. Luke wrote Acts. Luke wrote Luke. Luke says this. Luke 22, 61. The Lord turned. He turned from the cross. Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. You know, I, this is a verse you just have to read slow. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. Me and my family, we hear roosters every day, every morning, because Scott Allen and his wife live next to us, and they have chickens and roosters. But when Peter heard this rooster, 
it reminded him of a bold declaration that he had made in his fleshly pride, thinking he was the golden child, that he was the five-star recruit. But it reminded him of who he wasn't. And then Peter was cut to the heart. Do you see this? And he went outside and he wept bitterly. You crucified him. Everybody did. Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson, was in the movie, just one part. And it was at the crucifixion, him reaching out. And he wanted it that way by design. He didn't want to be in the movie, but he wanted to say, I did this, my sin. And Peter's owning his. And we crucified him. Not only in cutting to the heart are they saying we were wrong, we were wrong about Jesus. Not only they were saying we were responsible, they were saying there is a response. We must respond. The gospel, it demands a response. For them, it was believing, it was receiving. And they did what we did a few weeks ago here. They, they, as they believed, they were baptized. I want to encourage you, if you've never been baptized by immersion after conversion, to talk to us so we can celebrate and we can worship our God together. And you can be obedient in baptism. And that's what they did at, the, at this church then, is they jumped in and literally and jumped forward and to take the plunge, to be baptized, to say, we must respond. The Puritans have a saying, they had a saying, it goes like this, the same sun that melts the ice, it hardens the clay. In other words, let's say the gospel is the sun. And while each and every Sunday and each and every venue all over the world, it can melt ice. Hearts can be softened. You can come and you can say, I'm broken and this is what I need. I need this good news. I need it to invade the dark spaces, the bad in my life. I receive it. I melt. I need it. But it also, it can harden the clay. And I'm not a good pastor unless I don't remind you often that God will not be mocked. He will not be deceived. And that he is against the hardening of your heart. And that to come and to listen and to do nothing will lead to a hardness of heart. Consider quickly what God says. Ephesians 4.18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Jesus, hearkening back to Isaiah, says this in, in Matthew. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. With their eyes, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Proverbs 28, 13, and 14. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he confesses and forsakes, will obtain mercy. Blessed, happy, happy, happy is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever, by contrast, whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. I pray, as I did with a group of pastors many months ago, I pray against the religious spirit of Mississippi. I pray for us because there's a church on every street corner. I pray for us because it's so easy for you. And let me just say this, if you're on staff, if you're married to someone who's on staff, if you're an elder or a deacon or play in the band or attend often, this is sort of dangerous right here. And I pray against the hardening of the heart. 
It's the exact opposite of being cut to the heart. Oh, that the ice would be melted. That you would be softened. That you wouldn't let this be a show. That you wouldn't leave here today and talk about how many people were or weren't here. Or how the sermon was good or different or bad. Or, and you would evaluate like, it's, like you're a judge. But ultimately you would say, God, what do you want to do in me? And where is my heart hard? Where does the ice need to be melted? Where do you need to cut through and get past? Because I'm telling you, I don't want us to be a, a place that is just a place to attend or an event to sit through. I long for us to be a movement to be a part of where you will not just come here to be fed, but you will come to exercise your faith. And that we will be a place. Now listen, our church is five and a half years old. I spent some time last Sunday talking about some of the memorable moments from our past. And God has moved us here. No way did I think that a church not even three years old would take on $2 million of debt and be given this building for our future. And while we are attempting to trust him provisionally to secure and restore this place and to be salt and light here, the next season for us is not, is not maintenance or preservation. It's to be a part of a movement. I believe, I know a lot of leaders say this, some of you will greet it with some cynicism, but I do believe our best years are ahead of us. And there are some in the room and some in this place who walk those hard early years. It's why I threw up Zechariah 4.10 and tried not to cry like a baby in front of you. Do not despise small beginnings. For the Lord is pleased to see the thing get started. And that's what he did here and in a smaller way, in a different measure. He's doing that here. And I believe this next season for us will be hearts that are quickened. That will take responsibility. That God will melt the ice and we'll be a part of a movement. We won't have a bulletin loaded with announcements and a schedule, a calendar filled with activity so that no one can live missionally. You're just too busy at the church. You're too burnt out being a professional religious person. But you can be out there. I looked at a staff calendar, big calendar up on the third floor outside of Jeff's office. And it's just a lot of cool things. Most of the staff are, most of the staff are selfishly going and writing their birthdays, right, where, 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 they, where they want us to celebrate. But I was looking at who, what staff are going to be out this summer and this fall. And I'm like, Van and Daniel and so-and-so. And so I'm like, man, especially Van and Daniel, man, where are they going? Like, we're paying them, right? We're paying them to be here. Why are they out all these weekends, you know? And then, I, you know, my anger rose up. I thought, I'm going to put my foot down, you know? I'm about to, about to be the boss around here. And then I looked, and I'm like, man, they're, they're, they're going places. Like, they're, they're ministering. And so I'm asking you to pray for me that, that I can be ready, that we can get past securing and restoring, and we can move to sending and going and being, and that we can one day plant a church and plant many churches, and we can send out our best and our brightest, and that we would be a sending church, a movement of God. Oh, I pray that we would hear and that we would respond. That we would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Their response was a softening. It was a cutting to the heart. And quickly, quickly, because of time, I want to tell you three things. They're right there. Their response was this. As they took responsibility, they sought forgiveness. Verse 38, they changed their minds. Verse 38, and they surrendered. This week, I took my 15-year-old daughter to the orthodontist. When we pulled up out in the reservoir, she said, Dad, you don't have to stay. That shows you how she feels about me. So I just drove around, went to Target, got a cup of coffee, came back. And when I came back, 
she had her braces off. Now, when you're a 15-year-old girl and you get your braces off, that's just a good day. That's just a really good day. We're driving down Lakeland, and she's smiling, you know, ear to ear. It's just a, it's just a joyous moment. They gave her a gift. You know what the gift was? A jar full of candy. Isn't that good? That's like, like when you leave church today, we give you like a bucket of sin. Like you just like, hey, we pray God work, but here's some sin. And so take it out there with you. Like you don't, that's just, not, that's not what you need, right? And she gets her braces off and she's so happy and she can, I guess, start eating candy now. Let me ask you, what do you do when you go to the dentist? Right before you go to the dentist, what do you do? You brush your teeth and you floss and you might pop something in there because you are seeking to impress. And then you go, and what an exercise in futility, because when you go and you get there, he or she puts you in a chair. And they, they have a dye, they have an x-ray, they have special lights. I mean, they are going to see you're ugly. And just a few minutes ago, before you left the house, you brushed and you flossed. There's darkness in you and in me. And we're running around doing a bunch of flossing and brushing. But when the light of God's holiness shines on it, we are exposed. And what do you do when you're exposed? What did Adam and Eve do when they were exposed? They, you know, they ran and they hid. What do you do when you do something wrong? You run and you hide. You may camouflage it a little bit, make it a little fancier, but you run and you hide. When I do wrong, I'm telling you, I run and I hide. I'm just like you. It's the human condition. And what happened when the Holy Spirit showed up? When they were cut to the heart, they sought forgiveness. They changed their mind. Luke wrote Acts. Luke wrote Luke. Luke tells the famous story in Luke 15 of the prodigal son who took his father's inheritance and said, it was you know, a cash advance, and he said, I want my payday loan. I'm going and I'm going to live how I want to. And you know how he lived it up. He lived it up. He partied like a rock star. He lived with prostitutes. He lived according to his own devices. He reveled in sensuality and he ended up broke in a pig pen and he returns home and I love this expression I've taught it often but it says this he returned to his senses he felt something some of you are stoic you're detached emotionless and you scare me and you scare the people you live with and if God's going to do a work in your life you're not going to look so dignified and you may have to get your ugly cry on. In fact, I don't know how God's going to work in some of you unless you get your ugly cry on. you got to come to your senses. And it isn't pretty. And as you do it, as he did in Luke 15, he comes back and the father welcomes him. He sees him from a distance, welcomes him, kisses him, kills a fatted calf. Elder brother didn't like it. You know the story. I won't get into it much, but they have a party and he gives him a robe. I love a robe. I asked the couple last night before the wedding, can I wear my robe? They said no. But I wore the robe last weekend in Memphis at a wedding there at an independent Presbyterian church. I, was, I love to wear the robe. It makes me look fat. But it's just, it makes me feel special, right? This, this I'm wearing a robe. When we baptize, we get there and it's a white robe. It's not a black robe. It's a white robe. And I feel angelic. That's how you perceive me to be anyway, right? Holy and righteous and pure and angelic. It's a robe, man. And here's what I'm saying to you. That's the picture God wants to give us. That father gave that son a robe and he said, look at this mess. Woo! There's a robe. 
And you and I are called to wear the robe. They sought forgiveness. They repented. And they surrendered. It's hard to do this thing called surrender. But it's the only path for God to work in your life. I want to pray for us.